0: Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. For June 23rd, 2022, it's the SCOTUS Guts the Establishment Clause edition. I'm David Plotz of CityCast in Washington, D.C. I am joined by Emily Bazelon of New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School in New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hey, David. And by John Dickerson of CBS's Sunday Morning in New York City. Hello, John.
1: Hello, David. Once again, I'm in Washington.
0: Man, you've been in Washington for like three weeks. You haven't called. You, you like. (laughs) I've just been sitting in my apartment waiting for anything to do, like any chance to to like have a cup of coffee with you. But no, there's such short trips. You're probably staying in a hotel right next to me, and you don't even. Let's not even talk about
1: it. I'm in your building
0: this week. Has the Supreme Court gutted the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment? Then more appalling revelations from the January 6th Commission. What will the upshot of that be? What will the impact of those revelations be? And then is cancel culture destroying progressive organizations from within? Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. And do not forget, dear listeners, that we have our live show coming up next Wednesday, June 29th. Join us in Washington, D.C. John and I will finally be in Washington, D.C. together, apparently, at 6th and I Historic Synagogue for a delightful, a delightful night. Go to slate.com slash live to get tickets. There's still tickets available. We're going to be at 6th and I on Wednesday, June 29th at 730. It's going to be a really, really fun evening of discussion. I'm sure, Emily, there will be some interesting uh, Supreme Court news to talk about by then.
2: Absolutely.
0: So get your tickets at slate.com slash live. Join us next Wednesday night, June 29th in Washington, DC. Oh, and also you can stream it live. So go to slate.com slash live. Also, if you are not in DC, can't make it to DC, but you can still watch the show live as it happens. This promises to be a monumental and contentious decision season at the Supreme Court, and they get started with a bang, a real sort of New Testament bang, with a case involving state funding of religious schools in a rural Maine this week, Carson versus Macon. Emily, please start us off. Tell us about this Maine case and what the conservative majority held in this case and why it's interesting.
3: So half
2: the school districts in Maine do not have their own high school because Maine is a pretty rural state. And if you live in one of those districts, the state will pay for you to send your kid to private school. They will not pay for you to send your kid to a private religious school. And the reason for that is a law Maine enacted in 1982 where they said that they don't allow taxpayer money to go to fund religious education. And this was a challenge to that law by a couple of families who want to send their kids to Christian schools. The Supreme Court said that Maine is offering what it called a neutral benefits program for families and that it was a violation of the Constitution of the Freedom of Religion Clause to uh, not allow those families to choose religious schools and what is really a sea change about this ruling there's sort of two things about it. The first thing is that this is the first time the court has issued a ruling like this about religious instruction. So there was a decision a couple of years ago could schools that are religious qualify for funding to resurface their playgrounds. The court said yes, but in an opinion by Chief Justice John Roberts seemed to kind of make an important distinction between like your playground and what's happening inside your classroom. So Now that distinction is gone. We're talking about the state funding religious instruction. And the second thing that's important here is that it's one thing for the court to say that a state may fund religious instruction if it chooses. Now states must fund that if families ask for that. And so that's why this decision is a big deal.
0: What other... Obvious or speculative applications does this logic lead us to?
2: I mean, I think what's really at issue here are voucher programs. So if you have a state that has a voucher program that allows people to pick private school or charter schools, families are now going to challenge and say, we want to send our kid to religious school, for example, to a Catholic parochial school. And the logic will be, well, this voucher program is a neutral benefits program. How can you justify excluding those religious schools? There are 37 states that have laws or often constitutional provisions against taxpayer funding for religious education. And now all of those laws seem suspect. Some of those constitutional state amendments are called Blaine Amendments, and they have a bad history. They were about blocking parents from choosing Catholic school in particular. The states often have reenacted those laws since the earlier times when they were motivated by these anti-Catholic sentiments, but, you know, that history is there, and that's part of the story.
0: So, Emily, as I read the Constitution, the Constitution has these two different ideas about religion in it, that you cannot limit the free exercise of religion, and you cannot make a law establishing it, that Congress cannot do either of those things. Is what the Roberts Court is doing a fundamental shift in the balance of those two clauses towards free exercise Trump's establishment. Has the establishment clause been weakening over time, or is it just that it happens to have been weak in the last 50 years that we can remember? I would have thought the establishment clause had been weak back in the day, and we just don't remember that.
2: Well, that's true. I mean, the establishment clause didn't have huge amounts of teeth for some of our History, but then it had more teeth. Right. I mean, the idea that states couldn't have a crash, for example, in a public space, that was like a big deal when the Supreme Court made those rulings, the idea that you couldn't have prayer in school we're about to have a ruling come down about that any day now, um, which is probably going to open the door to more prayer in school. Those are pretty firmly entrenched rules, and we've seen those um, provisions really erode in the last several years in the Supreme Court. You probably remember there have been a bunch of opinions about big um, crosses erected on public property. The court sort of famously split the baby about these two um, cases about crosses also on biblical, state Also biblical, splitting the baby.
1: No, I was going to say very, that very itself.
2: Um, And Justice Breyer was the only person who joined those two opinions. That was, like, maybe 10 or 12 years ago. Then um, last term or the term before, there was another giant cross case, and the Supreme Court said, oh, yeah, that's fine. And then we've seen these cases in the education setting that are more and more moving toward this. um, You know, the Establishment Clause is about the idea that the state cannot endorse religion, And now we are seeing the state directly pay for religious instruction. One thing that's really interesting to me is that since this case was filed, um, Maine passed a law saying that schools that qualify for this funding program cannot discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity. And the two Christian schools that the families want to go to in this case both don't hire LGBT teachers and won't admit students who identify in that way. So there's going to be more litigation over this, and that is a really interesting postscript to to this case.
1: Is the out essentially that those who would like to have states pay for this kind of schooling can say, We're not establishing a single religion. We're just allowing you to use this money to go to, you know, you could go presumably if there was a a Muslim school or a Wiccan school or whatever, you could do it. And that's the way they get out of the establishment uh, trap. And then the second question is whether if you were in one of the 37 states that has so-called Blaine Amendments, if you would then pass anti-discriminatory laws of the kind you just articulated, you know, as a a way to work around uh, the implications of this Supreme Court decision.
2: Yeah, so yes to both of those things. I mean, absolutely, the um, plaintiffs in these cases are saying we are protecting the rights of religious freedom for everyone, not just our particular um, sect or whatever you want to call it. You know, the thing about that is that when you look at – who really runs religious schools, you're mostly talking about the Catholic Church and Christian evangelicals. And when you think about... So that's
1: how we get them. Yeah.
2: When you think about the threat to public education and whether we're going to have lots of public funding for religious schools, which will mean many fewer students in public school systems, like that's where it's all going to go. But you're totally right that, you know... it protecting the right to religious instruction in school would apply to a Jewish or a Muslim or a something else school. Um, And yes, I think this next question about how anti-discrimination law is going to clash with these freedom of religion values and constitutional principles, like that's a big looming issue in the school context and also outside of it.
0: Where do you think it's going to go? I mean, if you look back to the early 80s, Bob Jones University lost its tax-exempt status back then. Uh, The IRS decided it's it's racial discrimination. Its practices of racial discrimination meant that it couldn't maintain its tax exempt status. Not a you know not a uh, not exactly the same thing that's going on here. And and I think these schools are not racially discriminatory, but they certainly are discriminatory in some of these schools in some places against LGBTQ faculty, and students. And wh- if you had to guess what how this litigation will resolve itself, where do you think it goes?
2: I mean, this is a super conservative Supreme Court. And that Bob Jones decision, which is totally apt, I'm glad you brought it up, has never been extended outside of the context of race discrimination. In the constitutional context, the court has never enshrined LGBT status with the same kind of protection against discrimination as race. In fact, some of the conservative justices have made a point of saying, well, race discrimination is different from discriminating on the basis of LGBT status. And so, you know, I think that that's probably the direction this is going to go in, that, you know, the court has never enshrined sexual orientation and gender identity with the same kind of strict scrutiny, uh, elevated concern about discrimination that it's given to race and it just seems really unlikely that this conservative court would make such a move.
0: John, this is uh, certainly an effort to to extend the free exercise clause, to extend uh, religious liberty in ways that conservatives like. But there is also this broader conservative effort to undermine public schools, the using of the phrase government schools to describe public schools, the policing of public school teachers in Florida, the new push in Texas to bar undocumented children from public schools, and a kind of general effort to undermine the legitimacy and the prevalence of public schools in American life. Uh, Do you think that that is is that something that is a true guiding force of conservative politics these days? Or is it is it just like a byway?
1: The first way I sort those efforts to meddle with how public school um, education is taught is as a is it just as a very powerful cultural organizing principle, as we've talked about before, when bureaucrats get between parents and their children, it inflames political activity. And so I'd seen that as a um, both a real concern and then one that's been stoked for the purposes of political organization. But I'd also felt like that there was also some genuine interest in in the public school system in maintaining it that that um, that that concern implicit in that concern is the idea that your kids are going to keep going to public schools not that it was a sideways effort to destroy public schools for the purposes of of creating voucher programs or some other thing. So, you know, the project for vouchers and giving school choice, which inevitably uh, will weaken public schools, um, I think that's alive, but the, the significantly more powerful um, force is the one that uses that strong cultural tie between parents and their children as a organizing measure. Uh, so that, that I think is, well, we're going to hear a lot about that all election.
0: Emily, before we go, we're taping on Thursday morning, actually, by the time we're done taping, there may in fact be another big Supreme court decision released. What are the big cases we're still awaiting from the Roberts court this term?
2: School prayer. So this is the case about the football coach who was praying after the game publicly.
0: Oh, that's done. I can, I'll can. i tell you how that one was decided. It's He's a, allowed to do it. Yeah, okay. lots I, I, of suspense. You can just ping me. I'll just tell you how they decided everything. Go ahead. Keep going.
2: Can the EPA regulate carbon emissions in nope, the way-
0: They cannot. <laughs>
2: <laughs> can New York State have a gun safety law? That-
0: no, nope, it cannot.
2: <laughs> can <laughs> women have a constitutional right to access no. abortion? No.
0: No. Okay, the, we're done. The decisions are down. The decisions have come down. All right. Oh, my God. Really? Those are All those are still coming? Wow. <laughs>
2: Today, Friday, and presumably next week.
0: On Slate Plus every week, we do a bonus segment. For Slate Plus members. This week, we're going to talk about the administrative state's effort to uh, act expansively. We're going to talk about the Biden administration's proposal to cut nicotine levels in cigarettes to almost nothing. Is that wise public health policy or nanny statism run amok? And how quickly will the Robert Supreme Court prevent them from doing it anyway? If you are a Slate Plus member, you get those extra segments. You get member-exclusive episodes from shows like slow burn amicus you get no ads on any podcasts and of course you get unlimited reading on the slate site so go to slate.com gabfest plus and become a member today this episode of the gabfest is brought to you by aura frames are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life aura frames are beautiful wi-fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app, and if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura Frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura Frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura Frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an Aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply.
4: This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives. And now get $250 when you join RAMP for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. RAMP.com slash easy. RAMP.com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank. Members of DIC terms and conditions apply.
0: The January 6th committee, it is really making headlines every day. It is revealing astonishing, shocking, and depressing things about what happened in the aftermath of the 2020 election. The latest hearing this week. Uh, Again, we're taping before the hearing that will be held on Thursday afternoon. Latest hearing this week exposed the obscene Trump-directed scheme to install fake electors from states that Trump lost, a scheme that was partially foiled by Mike Pence and his staff, apparently. And it also uh, exposed the courage of state-elected officials who resisted a threatening campaign by Trump and his minions to get those officials to change results in states like Arizona, Wisconsin, and Georgia. John, what were the most interesting things you have been learning from the commission and committee?
1: It's amazing that we're learning anything from the committee, which is to say, think about the the expectations for committee hearings, for public revelations that come out of congressional work. It was pretty low, right? And and these have been truly revelatory, um, both in what we've learned and also just in the way that that it's been displayed. So, but what I mean is what we learned is things like After the riot started, the president wasn't acting, so Mike Pence had to jump in and be a shadow president and try and get the National Guard to come out. Um, We learned uh, that once Chief of Staff Mark Meadows had been told the rioting had started and that there was violence and that a break-in had happened at the Capitol where Meadows used to work, he informed the president. And after the president was informed that Mike Pence was in danger, he issued another tweet. And remember, Trump's tweets were being read by bullhorns at the riot. He wrote another tweet putting the focus back on Mike Pence. Um, those are things we didn't know. And the use of the Republicans has been uh, quite useful in in learning about a lot of these things. So, for example, you know, learning that Mark Meadows told Trump, we learned it from his aide. The most recent testimony, the fake electors, the fact that there is some potential connection to Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson, who denies it and said it was just... What like, a weasel. What a weasel. It's unlikely that... Um, I mean, Ron Johnson has peddled a lot of things that are um, f- false in, in a variety of different contexts, whether it's COVID, w- related to COVID or related to um, the election of 2020. So there's every reason to think that there's more to this than meets the eye. Um, but the fake elector scheme, including printing up fake fake electors sort of little certificates, the way some people might have created fake IDs when they were 16 um, and the drinking age was 18, um, was sort of clownish thing. But what's interesting to me about it is the Justice Department has now issued subpoenas for election officials, including the chairman of the Republican Party in Georgia. And when the Justice Department comes with subpoenas, that means people are in real danger. And that matters both to them, but it also matters in terms of squeezing them, because this is just one of the prongs, one of the many ways in which President Trump knowingly uh, behaved. Illegally, and the creating the fake electors is distinct from his other schemes. And then I think, just as a matter of drama, Rusty Bowers, the House Speaker in Arizona, his testimony about his fights with Trump.
2: I said, Look, you are asking me to do something that is counter to my oath when I swore to the Constitution to uphold it. And I also swore to the Constitution and the laws of the state of Arizona. And it is a tenet of my faith that the Constitution is divinely inspired of my most basic foundational beliefs. And so for me to do that because somebody just asked me to is foreign to my very being. I I, I will not do it.
1: I think their testimony was just powerful because ultimately this is a test for whether the Republican Party wants to break the lie to violence pipeline. By which I mean, there's obviously been uptick in violence as a result of the fact that the president knowingly lied about the election and his party stood by and allowed that lie to live. And it's the obligation, it seems to me, for people engaged still in the business of government to not just let that lie to violence pipeline exist because it's threatening all the people who are testifying. It's threatening the members of the committees and it's only going to get worse.
0: Do you think, Emily, that what Rusty Bauer said sort of additively to his testimony was in a way more uh revealing than what he said in his testimony he obviously acted quite courageously in the moment and you know did his job as a public official in resisting uh trump's exertions to to cheat the election but rusty bowers then went on to say that he would vote for trump if trump were the nominee and he are running again it is kind of amazing that we've reached the state of partisanship in this country, whereby somebody who has literally been pressured into, into a profoundly illegal act that would undercut the very foundational principles of American democracy by President Trump would then turn around and the next voice say, I would vote for him.
2: So, I mean, there's two ways to read that. One is that, you know, you think that this threat to the democracy doesn't matter as much as your policy preferences. And another one is just political survival, that someone like Rusty Bowers thinks that if he doesn't stand for Trump in that moment publicly, that he is just going to be absolutely fried. And like, that's his group that's his people and he has to stick with them um i mean i totally get that i think there is so much pressure to stick with your um you know the the people who brung you to the dance and it comes up in all kinds of contexts and it leads people to really extreme positions and that was a great illustration of that what did you guys think of Rhonda McDaniel's testimony saying that Trump asked her to talk to Eastman about the fake elector scheme? I mean, I just feel like they are closing in on former President Trump in terms of his own knowledge and participation in these illegal schemes. And I wonder what you all made of that.
1: I think it's interesting Um Her testimony was essentially he put Eastman on the phone. um, So it's not as clean a a, a line as if Trump had made the case to her, please create these phony electors. And then um, after your act of cosplay, um, we're going to, you know, keep the coup going. So the fact that he handed over the phone is a problem. But I think the fact that the Department of Justice is going after party officials and will squeeze them, it's very possible if you're a party official who got duped um, by the president and his team, you might say, oh, yeah, I talked to the president on the phone and he said, I know this isn't illegal um, or I know this isn't legal, but we're going to do it anyway. So it, it might create witnesses.
2: And when you say going after, you're talking about the subpoenas. The Justice Department is issuing subpoenas.
1: Exactly. And I, presumably those subpoenas are linked to knowledge that these, these actors knowingly violated the law.
2: Right. But we don't have criminal charges yet, as far as I know.
1: No, but I mean, isn't wouldn't that certainly be on the way to that?
2: Yeah, presumably they're building a case. I just wanted to be clear. I was also wondering what you thought of an argument that Jack Goldsmith, who's a Harvard Law professor, made in the New York Times this week about just the competing concerns about whether to prosecute trump or not and this whole idea of whether the justice department would have to appoint a special prosecutor i felt really dumb that i just hadn't been thinking in those terms but once jack made that argument i was like yeah of of course merrick garland would have to think about a special prosecutor and in fact i can't really imagine how the justice department would not have to do that and it it's just all so complicated
0: why would there have to be a special prosecutor He's not the he's not the executive anymore.
2: Right. That's true. Goldsmith was making the argument that Garland has a potential conflict of interest. This is about the Biden administration, his boss, whether, you know, Trump, if especially if he's a part of Republican nominee, is the person trying to unseat Garland's boss, take away Garland's own job in the next term, that for all those reasons, you would want some distance between this prosecution and the Justice Department itself.
1: Let me offer the kind of answer that is both uninformative and narratively uh, fantastical. So Merrick Garland, the biggest, it seems to me, I, it's always felt like Garland has a huge problem, which is not just what it would have to be able to hold up in a court of law, but what this would unleash. Um, I mean, we've seen that there are, a the, the number of people who have stood up under pressure um you can fit them in an airport courtesy shuttle. So the, uh, the in the Republican Party, the number of people who would respond to any um, case by Garland, no matter how open and shut it was, would be to light, the, light everything on fire. Um, and so he's got to know that. Um, and so he must take that into calculation. Um, there would be very few who would stand up and say, this is important for the rule of law. Um, And those who did would see what the end of their careers, as Liz Cheney may very well see. So the question is, could Merrick Garland, this gets into the fantastical part, could he come out with a case, say, here is the evidence, and then basically have Biden step in and pardon Trump or shut it down somehow so that the evidence gets out there, but that we sort of, the the national nightmare, the national nightmare would be avoided.
0: I mean, Biden pardoning Trump would be such a, would be such a mic drop by Biden, would be... But Trump probably wouldn't accept it.
2: Well, the issue is what would Biden get, right? I mean, Ford got Nixon to step aside and kind of accept some level of humiliation. And it's really hard to imagine Trump doing anything of that sort because he has no shame. He has the opposite of shame.
0: There is this interesting fact that the number of people who think Trump should be prosecuted has risen significantly in a few weeks, the last few weeks, clearly a product of the hearings. Just to close on this uh Trump is now whining that Kevin McCarthy should have appointed Republicans to the panel, not pulled out of it because the hearings are making him look bad. Is he right that this was a strategic mistake? Would they be better off with some obstreperous Republicans being turds in the punch bowl and making the whole thing more of a partisan spectacle? I think he is, because it would be more chaos, more chaff, more mess, and people would just write it off as partisan disagreement.
2: Absolutely, he's right. There's no defense lawyer up there. There's no one making the argument. There's no one saying, well, what about this extenuating factor? What about the fact that the security wasn't as tight as it should have been at the Capitol? Like, I think he's totally right about that.
1: Especially what's weird, too, is McCarthy should have known that there would be some more stuff that would come out. I mean, I guess, though, after two impeachments, it's also not crazy to bet that no matter what comes out wouldn't really hurt, and that when you're in a conference where any capitulation to the forces of the other side is a is a grave capitulation, his self-preservation in the moment might have been wise uh, to just pick up his cards and go home.
2: I think it was like not thinking three steps ahead on the chessboard.
1: And and then just the final point is we had this extraordinary testimony by Shea Moss, who's a former Georgia election worker, and there are many ways a president can abuse power, and we're learning of new ways in which President Trump abused power in several different aspects as a part of the story but there is also a, a grave misuse of power when you take the entire power of the presidency and aim it at a single person and that's what happened with this georgia election worker and when she testified about the wreckage that it had created in her life the wreckage that it had created in her mother's life
3: (:This turned my life upside down um, I no longer give out my business card. I don't transfer calls. I don't want anyone knowing my name. I don't want to go anywhere with my mom because she might yell my name out over the grocery aisle or something.
1: Again, if you are a part of the party that allowed this to happen and are still championing the person who aimed the power of the presidency at a single person and you think that's great and that they should be the nominee of the party again, you've really got the wrong end of the stick.
0: GabFest Reads, every month we are having a special additive episode of the GabFest. Each of us is picking a book that we're excited to read, and reading it and talking to the author. And we have a new GabFest Reads dropping this Sunday, June 26th. Emily is talking to Carrie Blakinger about her new memoir, Corrections in Ink which recounts Blakinger's path from Olympic skating ambitions to heroin addiction to prison and ultimately to her new life on the outside. She is such a charismatic person. She's been on CityCast Houston a bunch of times. I can't wait to hear this interview, Emily.
2: Yeah, Carrie is fabulous. Um, This book is just a total page turner, and I had a great time talking with her.
0: So you can find a link to the book in today's show notes. And again, Sunday, June 26th, new GabFest Reads in your feed.
3: The future of America is in your hands. This is not a movie trailer, and it's not a political ad, but it is a call to action. I'm Mila Atmos, and I'm passionate about unlocking the power of everyday citizens. On our podcast, Future Hindsight, we take big ideas about civic life and democracy and turn them into action items for you and me. Every Thursday, we talk to bold activists and civic innovators to help you understand your power and your power to change the status quo. Find us at futurehindsight.com or wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: There was a fascinating recent article in The Intercept by Ryan Grimm about how progressive organizations have dissolved in a puddle of goo during the Biden presidency, according to Grimm, paralyzed by internal dissension over organizations own cultures grim recounts one institute that does abortion work being thrown into turmoil when its leadership didn't respond aggressively enough to employ dissatisfaction during the blm protests another organization the aclu that was riven with turmoil when its leaders took a free speech position in favor of the charlottesville white nationalist marchers uh, an environmental group torn apart um, and anonymous executive director one of many anonymous executive directors the pieces populated with anonymous executive directors says this anonymous executive director says they now spend 95 percent of their time on internal dissension and culture issues when it used to be 25 percent of their time so this piece by Ryan Graham has gotten a lot of attention a lot of it's been circulated widely and I think it clearly you know did touch a nerve there is a sense uh, that he certainly identified the ways in which council culture woke culture all these phrases which are very freighted, have have had an impact on progressive organizations. And in particular, what Grimm says is that it's made them really bad at their work during the Biden administration. That's made it hard for them to actually spend time fighting for their cause because there's so much time being spent on internal discussions of leadership, of the of historic racism of the institutions, of historic sexism of institutions, of failures to respond to events um, by the institutions. And so it's just like a really provocative piece.
2: So I have friends who work in organizations like these who have been worrying about these developments for a long time. And so I read it with sympathy on that front. On the other hand, there's no question that these problems of discrimination and, you know, racism and um, insensitivity and unreasonable expectations also plague these nonprofit organizations, right? I mean, they have this structure where they often have executive directors who have loyal boards, especially if they're places where the executive director is also the founder. There is often very little accountability. Um and the whole thing is like, just what is the goal, right? So with a for-profit company, you have this um, outside obligation to shareholders and to profit-making. You don't have any um, extenuating uh, outside check in the same way. And I know that nonprofit organizations are supposed to be more virtuous as a result, but can also make them less accountable. And so I found myself reading with a lot of um interest, and then also with the sense of, like, every single one of these places has a different story internally. And that until you know, like, until you've really burrowed in and done a ton of your own reporting on each instance, it's really hard to know how the equities shake out. It's often how I feel about, you know, stories of Title IX violations of sexual assault on campus or, you know, Me Too problems. Like, they can go... Either way or really in multiple ways um, what did you guys think
0: I've always heard I've never really worked for a non nonprofit I've always heard that they're terrible places to work at almost almost everyone I've ever met who worked at a nonprofit has described to me how snake pity it is that idealism is a, is a potent a potent weapon in the hands of a leader because it just you, you can justify all kinds of bad behavior on the grounds that you're idealistically taking on a cause. Um, they generally people are kind of underpaid. Um, and it, and it, I do think it is this combination of sort of idealism and the reality of the work, which is that you just kind of have to do it. Um, and it is just a regular place to work in some places, but yet it is filled with this idealistic goal. Is That's a, a tension that is really, um, poisonous. But I think, I mean, like as I see it, there's a a bunch of different arguments that Grimm makes. One is that there are young progressives who think their old leaders have an outdated idea of the mission of the organization. That's like what seems to have happened at the ACLU, that the ACLU, the historic mission of the ACLU, is in conflict with what some of the younger staffers think it should be. Then there's the idea that there are millennials separate point, which is millennial staffers who expect a workplace to live up to their ideals and meet their emotional needs and not merely be a place to work. And that when that fails, that that causes tension. Then there's another point, which is certainly not unique to not for profits, which is that sense of alienation and loss that has come from the pandemic and working at zoom and, and then compounded by this amplification of grievance and disappointment that Slack creates that Slack is this forced, that, I mean, someone should write a whole book about how Slack has this capacity to create real unpleasantness in a work life, and that those two things, which are which are not endemic to not-for-profits, it's just something that's happened in all workplaces. Um, and then I think that Matt Iglesias identified another one, which is just unreasonable expectations from staffers, perhaps about how diverse their own organizations can be. Yes, pace uh, of change, and so yeah how it how yes how quickly can you change the can you change the composition of the staff and the volunteer corps and like the the mission of an organization like that and so those are all different pieces and each of them you can see uh affecting these organizations in different ways
1: yeah i I tried to come up with a list of all of the complicated swirling pieces um i mean I, so in the covid basket you know you mentioned that david that includes i thought the a very good point about how difficult it is to work out some of these issues when you're not seeing each other day to day. If if some of the tension between the generations is about motive questioning um, or whether people's opinions are affected by their the privilege of hierarchy or or race or gender, um, that those can break down when you are when you're with them day to day, and that th- that gets atomized and screwed up when it's you're living through through Zoom which is distinct from the challenges of COVID that come with living under a pandemic that's affecting all workforces um but there's also and i guess maybe you you mentioned some of this but one of the other ones that i would add is politics which is that in one sense after george floyd's murder after biden's victory there were people there were a lot of people who thought there was a moment of opportunity and and Particularly in in the political area, there was a moment of opportunity, but the opportunities were quite small. I mean, Biden came in with very small uh, margins in the House and Senate. To think that he was going to get a great deal done was a bit of a fantasy. But there were a lot of people who thought, wait, we control or at least liberals control um, or have access to power in in the House, Senate and White House. Why aren't we doing more? And I think frustration with politics is probably a part of this um, as well. I've got seven different categories here, I mean, including things that are historical, like the generational in movements, there's always been a fight between the old and the younger generation. Um, You know, student nonviolent coordinating committee had tensions with Martin Luther King. I mean, so um, there are the there are the historical undulations of of movements that are that are kind of feel like we've always had them. But then there's all these other parts and aspects that are quite new and, and create more of this tension.
2: I think that's all true. I mean, the other thing I was thinking about is how difficult it is to see proportionality in the moment. So, you know, if you're having a fight um for example, Planned Parenthood, should they rename the Margaret Sanger Planned Parenthood Center in New York City given that Margaret Sanger has a checkered history. She had talked about eugenics in the context of birth control, but she'd also you know, helped provide birth control to all these poor people all over the globe. Like, is that the right call or not? Reasonable people can just disagree on that, but it can also become incredibly divisive. Um, So that's just one example. And then the other thing I was thinking about was how much energy is being expended on the left right now toward... Um, scolding allies, because the people who are your real opponents, right? Like Tucker Carlson doesn't care what you say or do. The people who are actually on the right are just impervious to your critiques. But if you go after your allies who agree with you about 80 or 90 percent of the time, you're going to be much more likely to get an audience and have an impact. And so I think part of what's happening with these internal skirmishes is like, where can you actually – try to make a difference or take a scalp. And that's part of what we're seeing in these progressive organizations.
0: All right. When you're having a drink, and God, have a drink with somebody. Like, have a drink with somebody. Have a cocktail with somebody and chatter to them. But let's not undermine the benefits of drinking alone. Or drink alone. But then you can't do... You, if you drink alone, do you have cocktail chatters? John, do you like sitting there with a an old-fashioned and you're like, John, let me tell you about James Blames. Rum, Romany, and... Republicanism right
1: Rome Romanism and ruin. um my fear is that somehow some technology some technology will be created to capture all of the random things that are are made are uttered by me when I'm uh, just or think I'm just by myself at home. Would you like my cocktail chatter? Sure, the Watergate criminal case against Gordon Liddy and the um G. Gordon Liddy and the other watergate bur- Watergate burglars, all of the evidence and exhibits from that trial is now available on the web from the National Archives. So you can see the gym bag that they use to carry their tools. You can see the chapstick microphone. Um, And it's, it's if you, on the 50th anniversary of Watergate, where this week has been a particularly zesty week. It's the 50th anniversary of the famous 18 and a half minute conversation between Nixon and H.R. Haldeman, where they probably first discussed the break-in, and Nixon probably first said covered up, but we don't know because the, the 18 and a half minutes was erased. The 23rd, which is the day on which we're taping, in addition to being the 50th anniversary, think about this, in one in the same day, Nixon signed the Title IX legislation and he had the conversation with Haldeman in which he said, you know what we're going to do? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to get the CIA to tell the FBI to stop looking into this burglary thing. That's what we're going to do. It's going to be a really good idea. Oh, and we're saying all of this on on our recorded um, device. And that became the smoking gun tape that basically ended the Nixon presidency. So he both started Title IX and effectively ended his presidency on the same day, 50 years ago on June 23rd. So it's a we're in a frothy, zesty period of um, rich black soil of the, of the Watergate moment. And so if you want to keep um, tilling that soil, go look at the at the exhibits from, uh, from that period. It seems to me that G. Gordon-Liddy was basically the Steve Bannon
0: of his day. Very supple. Very supple chatter, John. <laughs> Emily. That's today's word of the day. <laughs> supple is definitely today's word of the day. I was wondering what your, what your workout is, that you're so supple.
2: Um, I am chattering about an essay that I read a couple of years ago in the Boston Review by Agnes Collard. She's a professor of philosophy at the University of Chicago. It's an essay called Against Persuasion. It's an essay about Socrates and how he saw the limits of what he was able to accomplish as a philosopher. And I was thinking about this essay this week because – Professor Collard wrote um, also an op-ed in the New York Times arguing that um, if you're getting canceled, you should just let people eat you alive because you don't want to be the person who gets obsessed with defending yourself and your own victimization. And you need to have a kind of open-mindedness that demands moving on from whatever you're caught up in. Um, So anyway, I, I just think she's a really incisive, good writer about these quite difficult philosophical questions. We read her Against Persuasion piece in the writing class I teach. So go find both of those pieces.
0: My chatter, I'm the last person in America to recommend this uh, in my chatter, which is Hustle, the Adam Sandler movie. Adam Sandler plays a a kind of middle-aged, dark side of middle-aged scout for the Philadelphia 76ers who uh, happens upon a Great basketball talent in Spain, and tries to bring this young player, a character named Bo Cruz, to into the NBA. It is pure pleasure. This movie. It is truly joyful. Sandler is wonderful. Queen Latifah plays his wife. She's wonderful. There's fantastic music. There's training montages out the out out the yin yang. There is amazing Philly texture. Emily as a Philadelphia. Uh, native you would like it and there's a there's a robert duvall sighting i didn't even know that robert duvall was still acting robert duvall has a kind of brief but but very um very supple turn as the owner of the philadelphia 76ers and it's it's just a wonderful movie if you have any fondness at all for a sports movie for a basketball movie or an adam sandler movie you will love it check it out hustle listeners you have chattered to us, you keep chattering, chattering at us. You tweet them to us at, at Slate Gabfest. You email them to us at gabfest at We really appreciate your chatters. And this week comes from repeat, repeat uh, listener chatterer Saruz Farivar.
4: Good morning, GabFest. This is Sarus Farvar calling from Oakland, California. Uh, just wanted to share with you my, uh, chatter this week. Um, this is a story that I read in Scientific American that is just really incredible. Uh, the headline is record breaking Voyager spacecraft begin to power down. And the deck is, the pioneering probes are still running after nearly 45 years in space, but they will soon lose some of their instruments. It's by Tim Folger in the July 1st issue of Scientific American. Uh, This story is really incredible um, because, first of all, Voyager and Voyager 2, Voyager 1 and Voyager 2, I should say, uh, are kind of iconic spacecraft that were launched, um, you know, as that says, uh, in the late 70s. These spacecraft are still out there, still collecting data. I hope that you and uh, all the other Gabfesters out there uh, find the story as fascinating as I did. Thanks again. All the best from Oakland.
0: I would note that I'm 52 years old. I'm still collecting data. It's like, what's the big deal? I haven't even started to power down. Just noting. I was created before 1977 also. So, anyway. V'ger. V'ger. <laughs> Nice Star Trek one movie <laughs> reference. Yes, <laughs> yes. Emily has no idea what we're talking about. I have <laughs> no idea. idea. One of our listeners. What listeners.
1: is going I'm on?
2: Smiling blindly.
1: Con.
0: Different movie. Different movie. It is a, the the story that that Saru's talked about. It's amazing, and what those spacecraft have accomplished is amazing and actually just the the fact that they were put out there at the moment they were they were launched 15 days apart because there was this tiny window to get these craft to 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 have the opportunity to explore in the way they were going to explore and so they were launched like that back in the day
1: it feels like a you know from such a more hopeful period
0: that's our show for today the Gap Fest is produced by Shana Roth. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Our music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond is Senior Director for Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is Executive Producer of Slate Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Gabfest and tweet chatter to us there. Please come to our live show at 6th and I. You can get tickets at Slate.com slash Live. It's on June 29th, next Wednesday here in Washington, D.C. And you can also stream it live. You can get tickets at slate.com slash either for in IRL tickets or streaming tickets. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We will talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? Uh, I, don't, I've, I don't smoke because I don't know how to inhale, and so I never learned how to inhale. So I, I've never had the pleasure of nicotine in my life. Um, I've smoked cigarettes, but without inhaling them. So I don't know what nicotine is like, but the Biden administration apparently does not want me to do that. Um, there's a announced plan or announced li- to the Wall Street Journal in leaks that the Biden administration is going to seek to cut nicotine and cigarettes to minimal levels. Um, they are not able to ban cigarettes, but the FDA can regulate nic- nicotine for health reasons. And they're going to ch- try to regulate it nicotine essentially out of existence in cigarettes and just make cigarettes almost nicotine-free if they get their way. This also, There's also a report today that uh, the Biden administration is also, the FDA is also going to um, not allow Juul. It's going to force Juul to remove its vaping products from the marketplace, um, its nicotine vaping products from the marketplace. So clearly the war on nicotine has begun. Uh, is this great emily or is this nanny statism gone mad
2: i can't decide so i'm not a smoker either on the one hand it seems like the addictive property of nicotine is like a public health crisis i mean so many people die from smoking related causes if the government can prevent that maybe it should go ahead on the other hand this is such a huge
0: that was just a snippet from our slate plus conversation if you want to hear the whole conversation Go to slate.com slash GabFest plus to become a member today.